Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. This week on First Reading, we're bringing you preaching and teaching insights into the first reading for Sunday, August 1st, which happens to be 2 Samuel 11:26 through 12:13a. <laughs> and we have a special guest expert to guide us through the text today. Yes, we do. Dr. Sarah Kipfer is ordained in the Reformed Churches of Switzerland and teaches Old Testament at Heidelberg University in Germany. She has written extensively on emotions in the ancient Near East, in the Bible, and in the artistic reception of the Bible. She's also engaged deeply with the book of Samuel and has a published book devoted entirely to King David, which is extremely helpful for our time here today. If you'd like to check out her work, uh, look at David Under Threat, and we'll put a link to that on our website. So, Sarah, welcome to First Reading. Thank you very much. So first up, could you tell us a little bit just about how you came to study the Old Testament and maybe how you got interested in David as well? Yeah, I, I, I was very fascinated by the Old Testament texts, and uh, my doctor father is one of the yeah, world-leading specialists in the books of Samuel, what was fascinating, most fascinating for me was the the, the power structures in, in the mm. texts. So mm. this was like it's the, the thing which drew me really to the texts, to see the mechanisms of power on different level between men and women, between um, king and um, servants. And there is so much going on. So I think we will see a little bit of that today. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, we're delighted to have you here today to talk about 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Um, would you please read the, the text for us for today? Of course. So this would be 2 Samuel 11, 26 to 12, 13a. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to the house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe, a lamb, which he had brought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his meager fare, and drink from his cup, and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. No, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock. But he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you to the house of Israel and of Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is such a fascinating text. Every time I, I read it, I feel like there's something new that comes up from it and, and also new questions that comes up mm. from it. So, I mean, I think before we even dive into the text, it's helpful to just get some historical context for it. So, is there is there anything that would be helpful for our listeners to know about kings or kingship in the ancient Near East that would somehow relate to this text? Mm, yes, I think it's important in this case to know that the king in ancient Israel was also the judge. So there is no mm. separation um, like in old days between government and court. So when Nathan mm. comes to David and tells him the story about the poor and the rich man, he does address David um, not as a king but as a judge in the first place. Mm. Yeah, and that's so helpful to to remember that um, kingship and the role of a judge that was all wrapped up in one. It makes sense that Nathan would bring this sort of issue to the king. Well, that I think that helps um, give us a little bit of historical context here. We also want to make sure that we're uh, aware of the literary context. And uh, what we just read together is the continuation of a story that started a bit earlier, right? This is the story of, of David and Bathsheba, which I find is interesting that we stopped right at... Um, Verse, uh, where did we stop? 13a. <laughs> yeah, sort of right in the middle there, right at the, what seems like the turning point of the story, but there's more to it, right? It continues on uh, all the way from uh, 13b on through maybe even up through verse 25. And I wonder, Sarah, what, what do you think of, um, what, what do we miss if we leave off the rest of the story? Um, I think, I mean, this is a very um, important part in a way. But at the same time, it's also usually um, separated as a later addition. So mm -hmm. verses 13b to 25 um, are telling the story of uh, um, the death of Bathsheba's first child. And it was obviously very important for a later redactor that her first child um, conceived in adultery dies. Um, and only mm -hmm. then the second child um, survives and this is Salomon, of course, the, the later successor of, of to the throne. Maybe the, the, the broader question we should ask behind this is where does the story really end? Mm -hmm. And I see I see like three different um, possibilities. Like mm -hmm. one possibility is that it really ends with first 13i, so where we now stopped. So um, this passage... Um, we are now just talking about David confesses his sin. He says, oh, I have sinned against the Lord. So we have, mm. we would have like a story of forgiveness. So everything is, is like, yeah, good at the end. So, or maybe <laughs> also to be more precise, uh, just covering up the guilt of the king. So this would mm. be another possibility, but at least so it could be an end. And another mm -hmm. possibility would be that um, we have like this uh, punishment of of nathan verses 7 to 12 
that this became true. And then, of course, the story would be much longer because mm -hmm. um, we have um, here um, in verse 11, um, Nathan predicts that God will take David's wife before his eyes and gives them to his neighbor and mm. um, he shall lie with them in the sight of his very son. And this is precisely what we later find in mm. um, 2 Samuel 16, 22. So there mm. the prediction becomes uh, true. And this is Absalom. Of course, if we are taking this as an end, then it would not be an end of with forgiveness, but mm. uh, of revenge and a very cruel story about and mm. bloodshed and sexual violence. Um, for several generations, so a very mm -hmm. cruel story, uh, all in all. And then the the third ending would be that, like it's an in between version that uh, David's child um, dies, but N David himself is not affected. So this would be mm. like a third um, solution, a, a, a combination, maybe a little bit of. God forgives David, but still his child has to die. It, it really is interesting that, uh, you know, you, you're you talking about these all these different possible endings to the kind of first story. So God is obviously not happy with what David has done. In fact, the text even says that God is displeased with this thing David has done. Um, there are many things that David does in this text that I think we would be <laughs> displeased with today. Is, is there any way to tell which one of these displeases God, or is it the culmination of all of them? Yeah, first of all, this is a very, very important uh, passage here in um, verse um, 27, um, chapter 11, because in the so-called succession narrative, we have like only three passages where God really intervenes the, mm. the, the story. So and this is one of them. So we have in, in 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 2 Samuel 17, 14, there these are the other um, two passages and this mm -hmm. one here. Um here it is said that, that yeah um we have this expression that David had displeased the Lord, and this is very close to a formula which is also used for his successor in the books of Kings. So um, doing evil in the context of the book of Kings usually means that the kings um, obeyed other gods. Um, and yeah. so generally it's like a more religious cultic uh, meaning or accusation. And um, it has not so much a moral dimension. Yeah. What, what would you, how, why do you think that's used here then? If there's not this issue of idolatry or obeying other gods, do you have a sense of why that formula is picked up here? Yeah, I've, 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 it's it's very interesting. I, I have no no definite solution, but mm. uh, maybe I could just I, I think it, I, when we are looking at um, verses ten to eleven, then it becomes clear what this means. And we have mm. here similar formulas because it's again said that David despised the word of the Lord and did evil in in uh, his sight. So David struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and take his wife. So this is like the main point he makes. Um, mm. And it's interesting that the order is reversed. So it said that yeah. he killed Uriah and took his wife. But actually, it was the other way around. So right. right. <laughs> he took Bathsheba and then killed um, Uriah. I find that really interesting because um, maybe in the... The tradition of reception that I'm most familiar with, I, we think of David uh, giving in to certain temptations, and um, sometimes, you know, uh, Psalm 51 is brought into this, mm -hmm. of, of sort of uh, uncleanness, 
But it's interesting to me that that the text that we're reading here really brings out killing and taking. That the mm-hmm. the failings of David here are really like abuses of his power, of his position of power, and not sort of like um, giving in to sexual temptation sort of failure. Yeah. So it's interesting that what the text is really bringing out here are the, those power dynamics. Would you agree with that, Sarah? Does that seem like that's really what the text is emphasizing? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I completely mm-hmm. agree. Yeah. Which I think is an important point for, for preachers. I think what you're, what you're, or the implication of what you're saying, Tim, is that it, it might be a mistake to make this about sexual temptation or about temptation or about anything like that, when this is really not so much about temptation as it is abusing our power on those who are vulnerable or, or moreover, even those for whom we are supposed to care. You know, if, if another image for king in the ancient Near East was shepherd, to, to take care of the flock. And in fact, that's the very image that <laughs> Nathan brings up in David's mind as one of shepherd. Then, then David abuses essentially two of his sheep by killing one and taking the other. Mm-hmm. It seems like it. And since you bring up Nathan, I'd love to talk about him for just a minute because he kind of pops into the story in a surprising <laughs> way. Like, oh, here's Nathan. He's a prophet. He's here and he's talking to the king. And we've we've started to talk a little bit about, about prophets in our podcast. And there's some more passages coming up where we get to really focus in on those those famous prophets in first and second kings. What I'm wondering about here is is really how we think about Nathan's role. And how Nathan's role as a prophet relates to David's role as a king. How does that mm-hmm. work together or does it within Israel's, like, I don't know, national leadership structure, if we want to talk about it that way? How would, how would you think about that, Sarah? Yes, I think it's a very important point because um, this is something which is really special in, in Israel, that we have prophets who are criticizing the king. So we have no examples from, from anywhere in the ancient Near East. So, mm-hmm. And what um, I found interesting when I did my research on reception history, I was looking at sermons from the 7th century um, Europe, so very old prints. And there um, very often preacher, preachers were using um, this example to um, criticize the king to legiti- legitimize their critique oh. um, to the king. So um, they are saying they are um, criticizing the king as Nathan criticized David. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this is really a, a very great use of this story. Um, <laughs> I mean, in times when freedom of speech is taken for granted and no one needs to be afraid of, of um, speaking uh, their mind. There is no need to legitimize this critique yeah. and the political s- system. But mm. um, I think currently we are like more in a in a world where um, the freedom of speech is in danger, and mm. maybe the story um, could function as a sort of empowerment for pastors all over the world, um, that there mm. is a duty and an obligation to criticize kings and. Um, presidents and so on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that helps me understand the mode of his discussion, his discourse. He's um, being somewhat politically strategic because, as a as a court prophet, as somebody who um, works within the royal system, Nathan himself is in a vulnerable place. There's mm-hmm. a there's a power dynamic there that if he offends the king. Um, that puts yeah. h- himself at risk. And so he kind of mm-hmm. comes about it in this sort of sideways way so that what David ends up doing is 
uh, condemning himself rather than <laughs> becoming defensive against Nathan. David is emotionally connecting with the poor man, mm. but he himself will be paralleled with the rich man without, without yeah. pity. So this is another, another aspect. I think this, the story really plays with his emotions. So, But I, I've always found it um, kind of surprising that David doesn't pick up on the ruse because it just seems that, of course, Nathan's talking about David, <laughs> but it comes as such a shock to David. Wait, me? This is about me? <laughs> so I, I wondered what either of you thought about that. Does, does that seem sort of like, is that just a literary thing? Like we're supposed to suspend our disbelief for the sake of following along with the narrative? Or I, I wondered if maybe this does say something about um, our ability to, you know, perceive our own wrongdoing when we, even though we find it so easy to recognize the wrongdoing of others. Yes, I think it's a really good point, but it's very hard to say it from from a textual perspective or to. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's very hard to to have hints that this is really like this would like be a more general um, message about uh, humans' behavior or something. But I, mm -hmm. I still, I would I would think that this is a very good point to make in a, in a sermon as an option just to ask, yeah, why are we sometimes so critical and why are we at the same time um, so little able to recognize our own mistakes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's interesting too the way this text um, seems to be that Nathan is trying to provoke David specifically to anger. Um, I, I just finished a dissertation on anger, so I thought a lot about anger. Uh, but one of the things that that uh, happens in the biblical text with anger is it it provokes a, a a retributive response that if there's something that's perceived as wrongdoing, then uh, it has to be made right. Like kind of like the scales have to be balanced and they're balanced through anger. Nathan is using the power of this specific emotion, which must provoke a retributive response to essentially, force David to, to have that retributive response on himself. Like you are angry, but the only one that your anger can be directed at is yourself. So you are the one who has to essentially not fix it, but um, own it maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so just that, that power dynamic, even of that emotion in this. And that's what we see. David does own the, he owns the moment, right? He owns the, the fault for what happened. Yeah. But he's, he doesn't die. He's not, <laughs> he doesn't face the personal, individualized judgment for yeah. his wrongdoing. Yeah. That's, that's something maybe we could think about for a minute. Like, why not? How is it that David sort of gets off the hook here and he gets mm -hmm. another, another chance, so to speak? Which, mm -hmm. I mean, if we've been following the story through the book of Samuel, um, it, it's hard not to think of Saul who was rejected by God for what seems to be, you know, relatively trivial offenses. And here David has committed these grave offenses and still, uh, you know, he's still known as a, as a man after God's own heart. So yeah. how, do we, how do we understand that and what's going on here? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult question. But one could also argue that... Um, David reacts differently because he still keeps connected to God. So this is mm. something Saul hasn't done. And um, yeah. so we have the story of the ark coming to Jerusalem and David wanted to build a temple. So we, we have like this, this connection and maybe 
it's God's fear of, of God um, which makes mm. the difference in, in this case. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. This is one of the reasons I struggle so much with David, uh, just as a, as a literary character, because he, he seems to be... He seems to attempt to be redemptive only in his relationship with God. Like it's kind of like relationships with other humans can kind of just go by the wayside. And and he does. He does lament and he does plead before God and all of the things. But ah, part of me is just like, man, buddy, could you just not do it in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a very difficult um, character. But I, f I found a quotation in one of my very old printed books. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was sitting in the library for like days and days and just sitting there and typing and reading. And then one day I found like one quotation which, which really touched me. And I really, I, I thought it would be good to, to translate it and to bring it in here. And it goes like the following. Um, David is a great mixture of various adventures, goods, evils, joys, pains, scorns, glories, vices and virtues, actions and passions, unexpected successes, strange accidents and wonders. Hmm. And I think this is really a very, a very good summary of like, it's like everything in it. And um, I really think I can understand David only as a mixture, as ambivalent, ambiguous, mm. um, antagonistic. <laughs> so it's like everything. Yeah. yeah if someone mm. tells me that he or she um, knows how the historical David was, then I get very, very suspicious <laughs> because <laughs> I think um, like our reality is very complex and multidimensional. And why shouldn't our story or even our history um, be simple and single line? So to every situation, yeah. there are so many perspectives and I think mm. I, I like this diversity and um, changing I'm, I, I can understand that this is for, for some, this is really um, challenging. But for me, it's really a beautiful example of the multidimensionality of the biblical stories. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about how to preach this complicated text on this complicated person. Um, Sarah, do you have any, any suggestions for preachers on angles they might take? What, what, uh, a point which is important for me, which I haven't mentioned so far, is... Um, to talk not only about Bathsheba and her child. So usually Bathsheba is described as, um, as raped, as a victim. Mm -hmm. um, and of course she is in a way, whatever this was, um, she is in a way a victim, but um, she also gets very powerful at the, at the end of the story in, in First Kings. So, um, and the child, of course, this is a very hard um, situation to describe. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that in between the two, the two Bathsheba and her child, we always a little bit forgot about Uriah. <laughs> so actually mm -hmm. he, <laughs> yeah. at least we, were we have been talking about um, the mourning of, of him, him, that Bathsheba was mourning her husband. But still, I think um, it's it's gets a little bit forgotten that we have actually, yeah, he is also a 
quite a, a heavy victim. He dies in the story. Mm -hmm. and, and with him also other soldiers, because they're approaching the city and yeah. um, fighting very hard. And because David wanted this situation, this war situation, to have um, Uriah killed. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we have, we have like a couple of victims um, which are mm -hmm. quite often forgotten. So this is mm -hmm. maybe maybe uh, as another point which which could be mentioned yeah i think that's a great point and you're totally right i i almost never talk about uriah the hittite he's the lost victim in my telling of this story so mm. that's a great point great preaching pitfall rachel if you were gonna preach a sermon from this text what would be the heart of it for you oh i was gonna ask you first because i'm struggling <laughs> to formulate that I, so I, I came with, with kind of an idea of, of this, going on this idea of the freedom of speech and the duty and obligation, but I find myself stuck, <laughs> as I usually am, on this David character. And I um, our conversation today, having me think about not only how complex humans are in our sinfulness and wonder and beauty, but also in the way that we place our hopes and dreams and fears and revenges on others. Um, and I, I just, I, I feel like that might be kind of a hard sermon to preach because you'd have to get from the biblical text to the reception of David in the community and then to the point of the sermon. But I, I do wonder about that as we have these political figures who are um, powerful and who are exceptionally fraught um, what are we placing on these figures of power that almost absolves us of our own agency, if you will? Um, mm. If it's all their fault and it's all their problem and they're just terrible leaders, then we had nothing to do with it. And um, it's it's not on us at all. So I, I don't know that that's, this is maybe one of the least helpful sermon suggestions <laughs> I've ever given because I can't even really imagine how to do it, but I'm just I'm just stuck on that. And whenever I was writing sermons weekly, I found that that stuckness was the sermon nugget for me. So, mm. so, so friends, I'm sorry I don't have much of a, a fleshed out idea. I just have a stuck point. And if that's your stuck point too, then maybe, maybe run with it and see where the Spirit's leading on that. Maybe there's um, a nugget there. And if people sit with that a while, they can, they can chip away, crack that nugget open and see what's there. That's right. Then, then write me and tell me what the nugget actually is. <laughs> Maybe I, I could I could add, I could would just take up the, the critique, this empowerment to critique someone, which yeah. you always um, mentioned. So um, it, it's very hard for us to critique someone. So we are we are very um, we are better in bashing and reproaching or doing social medias, but yeah. this this like open and direct critique um so saying you are the man so you did yeah. something wrong so this is like i think this is almost lost in our society absolutely i think nathan is a great uh model in this text of somebody who speaks truth to power to use the cliche to someone who speaks truth to power but also does it in a savvy yeah. smart way that um actually is effective like it actually yeah, does get exactly. to the get to david in a way that makes a change and and That's, a change of hearts let me just interrupt you and bulldoze exactly what you were saying because i think you're so right <laughs> <laughs> but i really do because i think that we think of critique as going on social media and blasting something or or not putting a whole lot of thought into a post but just putting it out there 
And is that effective or, or in, or what effect does that have? And is it the effect we're hoping for? What you, what you're lifting up, Tim, is Nathan as this model of an effective critiquer. And I think that, as you were talking about, Sarah, is an art that we've lost, is, is how do you effectively critique within the context of the power structure, within all of the ways, how do you critique in a way that will actually lead to change? And I think that would be a really great sermon. That would. That would be really interesting. And I, I, this is such a rich text. And David himself is such a rich, round character. I, that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. I think that people come back to David over and over, because you can always find a point of connection with David and yeah. some aspect of his character. So he's he's very yeah. relatable in that way. I think the only other thing I would add as far as a potential sermon angle would be that in the mix of all of these themes that we've, we've talked about with um, David's abuse of power, and you could have a whole sermon rabbit trail about abuse of power and what that looks like in our, the political leaders of our own day, or even in our own contexts of, of power dynamics. But the other part that I would want to bring out in a sermon is that this, which we talked about in our conversation, is that this also gives us some insight into God's character, hmm. that when there are such abuses of power and personal wrongs uh, against our neighbor, God sees those, and mm -hmm. that matters to God. Mm -hmm. I, I love the little idiom that's in there that it says, David did what was wrong uh, in the eyes of God, which yeah. is just an idiomatic way of saying, you know, it displeased the Lord. But that phrase, be'ene uh, Adonai, mm -hmm. emphasizes in the Hebrew that God is seeing this. Yeah, it's a sight, yeah. So I think there's there's the seed of a sermon there that um, we live in an era where there's a, there's a lot perhaps that we um, would want to complain about and, and say, you know, there's just so much wrong happening in our world. When we look at our own relationships, we can see there's so much that's wrong that's happening there. But um, it's not just on the human plane, right? God yeah. sees this. God cares. And if this text is any indication, God is active. God is acting mm. to bring about uh, a righting of the wrongs, um, mm. whether that's something that we experience right now in the moment or whether there's more of an eschatological edge to that. Mm -hmm. But I would always, uh, in a sermon that brings God into the story like this, I'd want to make sure that God shows up in the sermon. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that, that a preacher talks about God's angle on this yeah. situation. Always good advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this this has been such a wonderful conversation. Sarah, it's been so great to have you on the podcast and your insights have been so, so helpful. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much. Okay, our dear friends, if you like what you heard today, you know that there's a lot more over on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook where we post our episodes and have some space there for interaction with each other. So take a look for us there. First Reading is sponsored in part by a grant from Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. Trinity, forming leaders for Christ Church at work in the world. Thanks so much, Trinity at Capital. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for some music behind the reading this week. And thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Blessings, preachers. <laughs>